Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Lovely evening here by the Billabong. Glad to be here tonight. It's been a long trip out of Sydney. The truckie was nice enough to give me a lift out of this mess. We chatted for a couple of hours and then he began to tell me a story about his brother who went missing back in the mid-fifties under a shroud of dirty winds and government cover-up. Only to turn up again in the early eighties during the Royal Commission. We'll get a load of this. The new semester is starting and I begin the task of checking all our scientific equipment in preparation for our fresh young minds. Unfortunately, since the budget cuts, we have held it all together with tape and good luck. I have been the head of the School of Physics at the University of Sydney since 1949, and I've seen many fine young men move through these halls and on to careers at the CSIRO and abroad. It was a refreshing and invigorating way to spend the later years of my career, and after the war, well, a man needs to stay focused. I make my way across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The traffic is light and the sun sets to the west. At home is the love of my life, Laura. We met during the war, where she served as an aeroplane mechanic. She was let go once the men came back and often looks after our car when I'm off doing my experiments. A wonderful wife with a mechanical aptitude that baffles me. I walked in and kissed my wife, and we sat down for a cold dinner and took a drink before the sunset. Life was good. I made my way into work, looking at the rain that began to spatter about the place. I clicked on the radio. Great. Hot and sticky, I thought. The lab was poorly ventilated. I looked out the window as sheets of rain poured down over the university. The building was dead quiet, and only the faculty were there preparing for the following week. I pulled out the last box of Geiger counters and turned the dial. I checked the first counter and undid my tie. I leant over and pulled open the window, and the counter clicks increased. Thinking the device was faulty, I grabbed another and pointed it out the window. The Geiger counter yelled and yelled. I tried another four devices. They all clicked away like mad. I took the stairs up to the top of the roof and popped open my umbrella. I laid out five separate counters all around the roof. I looked in shock over the rooftops at the rain showering over the city of Sydney and beyond. I called the head of the university who joined me up on the roof. I'll get back to you, John. I have some calls to make. One hour later, three cars pulled up outside the faculty, and several men, all dressed in military uniforms, came storming into my office. Yes, I said, standing up. I watched as the man pulled out a document and pushed it towards me. I looked about as several men collected the equipment and carted it out the door. Alfred stood in the doorway, shaking his head. Best sign it, John. What sort of cloak-and-dagger nonsense is this, Alfred? We need to tell the general public, I said loudly. You've seen the levels I showed you on the roof. I've got a family to think about, John. Are they outside now, Arthur? He dropped his head and turned away. I knew I was on my own. 
The soldiers who had spoken to me were up on the roof picking up the counters that laid about. One lone soldier stopped and looked down at the counters and then over towards the city. All those people. He slowly turned and looked at me in a daze, then looked down at his feet, realising he was standing in it. He ran past me back into the stairwell. I must have sat in my little office for an hour or more in shock. I signed the waiver as I was not about to be arrested or executed for the Official Secrets Act. I hadn't heard of this sort of caper since my days in the war. The storms continued for most of the afternoon. I wound up my window and I felt sick in my stomach. I sat in our lounge room with the local paper in my hand and I found myself staring blankly at the paper, my mind driving back to the afternoon's events. My wife answered and I heard another person come in. I placed my paper down and I looked up. There was the soldier I saw on the roof. He was holding a handful of loose papers. Sir, I can't begin. Of course, you look upset. Can I offer you a drink? Uh, y yes, I yes, please. I poured him the brandy and he gulped it down and held it up for another. Down that went, and then he began. I stood on the roof, and uh, I couldn't help but think of all the, all the people. We're working with the Brits in the desert, you see. What do you mean? The radiation. It won't be the last time. It'll, it will keep going and going until they're done. They're done with what? Their tests. He stood up and walked over to the curtain and peered through, looking for something. They'll be monitoring you after today. Don't speak about this to your neighbours, okay? He nodded and placed the paper in my hands. It's all in there. I read the notes and looked at the map. The English had established some sort of base in Maralinga and were up to God knows what. The soldiers suggested it was related to the weather events from yesterday. I decided to have a look for myself. In the morning, I drove over to the university and went and applied for a leave of absence. Alfred was there, staring out of the window, looking up at the clouds. Good morning, John. I, I need to take some time off. Uh, a family emergency. Of course. After yesterday's excitement, I imagine we all need a break. You know, John, I think I was followed here this morning. Pardon? I left my house at 6am to get in early, and this car followed me. I knew because I went to the bakery and it was parked there. There were two men in military clothes. Alfred turned around, looking confused. Pull the blinds, Alfred. He put down his pipe and closed the blinds. I laid out the papers in front of him and explained that the soldier had come to my house late last night. Something is up in South Australia, I said. Something to do with the Brits and our government. I'm going to have a look. I've got a map. Need company? We headed out of Sydney and made our way south. The traffic dropped off, the land opened up, and the day grew to night. I kept seeing two lights far off in the distance following us. I think we're being followed, I said. Alfred looked around. Pull into the next truck stop and see what they do. We drove along the windy roads until I saw a collection of trucks parked outside an old outback roadhouse. Good enough, I said. I parked in plain sight we both got out and hid in the bushes. Look! 
The car screeched to a halt. It turned around and drove back down the hill and entered the roadhouse car park. They were looking for us. Definitely the military, John. I nodded in agreement. We watched as the men walked off into the distance looking for us. Stay here, John. Arthur clambered up the hill and ran to the boot of our car. He opened it and pulled out a long, thin knife. He snuck over and he stabbed at the tyres of the military man's car. Come on, John. Let's go. We piled into the car, turned on the ignition and sped off. Alfred looked out the window. Good luck out here, boys. <laughs> For the head of a university, he was a sneaky bugger. Looking at the markings here, we should find something over this hill. We drove down into a huge opened valley. Look at that, I said excitedly. A long runway with three aircraft hangars and several military men running around. We watched as a large plane carried down the runway. The roar of the engine could be heard for miles. Perhaps we should hide the car and try and take a look after dark. I agreed, and we parked behind a large bush. We watched from the bushes as the military men went about their business. Planes coming and going. They were preparing for something. We watched for hours and hours. And then we decided we'd better get some rest. Test two is about to commence. Please go to your assigned bay. I'll repeat, test two is about to commence. Please go to your assigned bay. Alfred and I jumped out of our seats in the car as the warning blurted out across the countryside. We scrambled out of the car and ran back up the hill to catch the plane taking off. Look, they're all gone. Let's go have a closer look. Here, here, the fence isn't finished. No one knows they're out here. We made our way down the hill, stumbling over gravel and bushes. The warning siren rang loudly. Halfway down the hill, something happened. Something that I thought I'd never, ever see. We watched in horror as the sky flashed a bright light. Our eyes burned as a great shock of wind knocked us off our feet. <laughs> we both looked up to see this huge mushroom cloud rising into the sky. I looked over to Alfred. He was covered in red dirt. We slowly got up and made our way down to the base. It wasn't long until we were spotted, staggering about in shock. The men came over and shoved us into a car and took us inside. We waited for most of the day. Then, three men came in and began to ask us questions. How did you find us? Who told you? That sort of thing. No concern for our safety was mentioned. No food, no water. Arthur stood up and started yelling. You think we're going to answer your questions? What the hell are you doing dropping nuclear bombs in the bloody desert, for Christ's sake? I looked about the room, and an older military man with a large collection of medals pinned to his chest sat silently next to the door. He smoked in a way that made him look tired. Tired all the time. Sat next to him was a small table with a green phone. He stubbed out his cigarette and picked up the handset. Yeah, looks like the news could be out, boys. Yeah, send it in. 
Send who in? I demand to know what is going on here. The work you're doing is extremely dangerous. I looked up, and standing before me was the Prime Minister of Australia, Robert Menzies. Morning, Prime Minister. Here they are. He stepped in and extended his hand. Hello, gentlemen. Quite the fright you got there, I'm sure, but I can assure you, you are in no danger here, boys. Prime Minister, these explosions are carrying dangerous levels of radiation across the country to Sydney. Uh, it's with westerlies, I imagine. Well, uh, the British scientists have assured me that there is no such threat. I can't begin to tell you how concerning this is to our nation's health. You've got to stop this. Sir, we had several Geiger counters on the university roof that were running red during the downpour. No, no, boys. The British scientists have assured me there is no such Not threat. to mention the counters inside the building running red. Yes, we had to take those, I'm afraid. The Brits tell me your calibrations were off. Old equipment, right? Off? No, they bloody were not. Gentlemen, please sit down. Go and sit. We need to talk. Go and sit, sit. The Germans surrendered. The Japs gave up. The good guys won. But the technology is here, for better or worse. The Yanks have it. The Brits want it. They can't just develop and test the technology in England. Can they? So bloody small. We need to do several tests here. You understand this is for the safety and sovereignty of our country in the United Kingdom. Because if we don't have it, boys, they bloody will. And we cannot have that. Well, there won't be any country left if plutonium is sprayed all over the cities. Think of all the livestock, the children, the farming. Now, Mr Barrow, let me reassure you that the plutonium level is well within tolerance... We've known this for a long time. Therefore, we felt it safe to carry on with the tests. Well, how can you prove this as part of your test cycle? The result can't be in yet. And then it dawned on me. How many more bombs have you dropped? Well, Mr Barry, this project has been running for four years. I sat back down on my seat and looked at the ground, shocked by what I had heard. So here we are, gentlemen. You both put me in quite a pickle. You've committed treason, you understand. This is no small thing, but I didn't get to where I am today by not seeing opportunities. Pardon? Well, we like to offer you both a job. You must be joking. Well, we'll naturally need to keep a lid on our tests and keep it out of the papers, but we need a team to conduct a long-term study of the effects of the technology. We think you two, with your combined histories and education, would be perfect for the role. So what do you say? So it's take the job or off to the firing squad? Well, I wouldn't say the firing squad. That seemed to be a bit of a waste of lives. But uh, at least a long-term imprisonment and a ruined career at the other end. We'll make sure that you both do not work in any university in this country again. Righto, boys. Well, think it over and... Uh, let the general know, okay? Thank you very much. Take care. I looked over to Arthur, who shook his head. They had us both. And that was our punishment. We spent the last years of the Maralinga bomb tests driving around the states of Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, collecting samples, talking to farmers, looking at records. We went back with our findings, and then... Nothing. We learnt they were just stored on the base in a room, 
never to be seen or read. Better to keep us busy and on their side than go to the press. On and on it went until the tests were completed in 1963. We were released from our task and went on with our lives. Over the decade that followed, the Australian people began to see the side effects of the tests done in their own backyard. From the local Aboriginal population to the soldiers and their deformed children, the cancer that stripped them of their wives. It wasn't until a Royal Commission was held in 1983 that Arthur and I met up again to present our findings that were taken over the decade. We too had kept copies. The Royal Commission is now in session. Can I please call forward John Barrow and Alfred Nichols? Hello and thanks for listening to the episode entitled In the Winds. The episode was written by Adrian Barker and performed by Lima Moore and John Vos. We'll see you next time by the Billabong.